Well, um, our scripture this morning um, is Romans 9, 6 through 24. Um, I feel like I should make a, a public service announcement. This is a sermon on the doctrine of election, so be forewarned. Um, um, before I read this scripture and, um, and preach, I, I also want to pray. I pray for illumination, but also for other things. So join me in prayer. Father, we ask um, for your presence, your light, your spirit in our midst. Um, I want to echo some of the, prayer, the prayers that were prayed earlier about um, the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. It is with a bit of joyful trepidation and um, disquiet that um, we celebrate that. Knowing, Lord, that uh, one law that um, doesn't regulate um, abortion in our, in our country, but knowing, Lord, that um, this is not the end, but actually the very beginning <laughs> of a true pro-life movement. And Lord, I am especially mindful of, as others prayed, of vulnerable women, many of the women who find themselves in needs of abortion. Um, they, need, um, they need care, they need community, they need family, they need so many things that, we, um, that simply a, a court decision is not going to provide them. Lord, I pray that we would, as a congregation, know what it means to love our neighbors, to love those in need, feel like they're in need of abortions, to love those who disagree vehemently with us and feel like they've had a fundamental freedom stripped from them. Uh, Lord, um, again, uh, as First Peter says, that um, may we be honorable before those who do not believe that even though they defame us, they will praise you when you come. And that's a hard thing for us to do, to hold that tension, Lord, of truth and love and but Lord, nothing changes for us here as we lean into loving um, the vulnerable, vulnerable women and children and orphans and widows. May you empower us to continue doing that work. And Lord, um, as we come to your word, um, we come as humble, um, humble people before your mystery and your awe and your greatness. So open our hearts to your word and by your spirit, make my words be sensible and uh, fruitful. Um, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. Uh, Paul is writing here, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall then we say? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, or I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on the will of the human or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does, God, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? For if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has preferred beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. So you're thinking, welcome back, Pastor Chris. <laughs> Sermon on election. Um, one of the distinct and most controversial teachings of the Reformed tradition is this, is the doctrine of election. Um, and for the natural mind, it is very hard. And if believing in election for you, if you're reformed and you grew up with this, if, if it is an easy thing for you to believe and embrace, it's very possible that you haven't wrestled with it deeply enough. Uh, my goal this morning is not to convince anything, anybody of the doctrine of election. That doesn't, in many ways, I want all of you to presume that this is something that is difficult. But I do want to just give you a very brief definition from it, of it from the canons of Dort in our tradition. Uh, and it, this is a, a very brief statement of the doctrine. Before the foundation of the world by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of God and his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault and from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in common misery. God did this in Christ, whom he appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of salvation. And God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy, to the praise of his riches and of his glorious grace. And you can hear in that last line of, of, of the canon um, an echo of the verses that we just read. Uh, the essence of the doctrine of election, as expressed by the Reformed tradition, is that we don't choose God, God chose us. We are elect not because we believe, but we believe because we are elect. Um, as Paul says in, about Jacob and Esau, he says, though Jacob nor Esau were yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The mother was told the older will serve the younger. Now, our reaction is, is generally pretty immediate. <laughs> This is unfair. This makes no sense at all. Um, and Paul is very prepared for this. He's very prepared for us in this response. 
What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul knows that we're going to make the charge of injustice here. How could God choose Jacob over Esau? This doesn't seem fair. I can understand a God who chooses uh, some based upon, you know, evidence of faith or, or good deeds. I can understand a God who sh- decides to show mercy to everybody. But what I can't understand, what I cannot accept, is a God that shows mercy to some, but not to all. This seems a very unjust thing. Now, when we find ourselves saying and asking these kinds of questions, thinking these kinds of thoughts, Paul has us exactly where he wants us. Um, What Paul is doing here is he's sort of setting us up. He's laying a trap. He's laying a trap for us. His presentation of election is meant to back us up to a ledge, the other side of which is an abyss. And that abyss is God and the decrees of God. And what Paul is doing in this chapter is he is instigating a fight. He is instigating a fight between us and God. And he is, wants to defend God. <laughs> Uh, It's helpful to understand where Romans 9 fits within the whole uh, book of Romans because it's a very intricately argued book. And Romans 9 comes at this point where Paul has been trying to make the case to show how God and Jesus Christ brings together the gospel of grace and brings together Jews and Gentiles. But the Jews, by and large as a nation, reject Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so the charge is that God has failed. God's plans have failed because Israel rejected Christ. And what Paul does is he argues to the contrary. He says, no, there will be a remnant that will be saved, and actually everything has gone according to plan. Everything has happened according to God's plan. God has not lost control of history. God has not lost control of history. Disobedient human beings have not ruined God's plans. But in laying out this defense of God, something else uh, happens. Paul creates a whole new set of problems, right? If this is how God works, it seems then fundamentally unjust. And so Paul relishes here an opportunity to defend God of this charge. But you know, um, we, we, there's a word called theodicy, which means the defense of God. And usually it's a word that's evoked to, to sort of try to get God off the hook for evil. And usually it's us trying to make sense of God's ways. And so Paul is doing some theodicy here, but he flips it on its head. Um, It's actually not God that needs defending. It's us that need defending. (laughs) Um, Paul refuses to make any apologies for God and God's ways. Quite to the opposite, he seems to sharpen his teachings here on election rather than soften them. And again, what he's doing, I think, is he's forcing us to allege a dark, bottomless, infinite abyss, who is God himself. Now, you might be wondering, why why I choose to preach on this text? And my main reason was this, is that I, I want us to wrestle with a transcendent God. I want you to wrestle with a transcendent God, and actually, the picture on the front of our worship folder here, I think, captures um, the essence of what I think this passage is about. In fact, this is of Chagall, of Jacob wrestling the angel, and very much this is a passage in the background of Paul's text. 
there is a sense when we wrestle with the doctrines of election, what we are wrestling with is God. And we are pushed over heels, feeling like we're going to be toppled over by the weight of God. And I'm just not sure we ever have to, are forced to wrestle with God that much in these ways in our culture today. Um, it's so easy for us as human beings to see ourselves as the makers of history, as the center of the universe, um, that the fate of the world and the universe ultimately is in our hands. It's so easy for us to take our present moment, what's on the news or in the newspapers or on social media as ultimate reality, and to judge ourselves in the light of that. But this is not the case. We are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the universe. We are not in control. We do not control our destiny. We do not control history. The world is not about us. God is God and we are not. That's, in a sense, the summary of the doctrines of election, is that God is God and we are not. And we need to remind ourselves of this. And so Paul's treatment, especially here in Romans 9, um, of election is kind of like a smelling salt <laughs> to wake us up from the delusion of our own sense of control and understanding of the world. He wants to humble us and force us to consider um, that it is not God who needs to defend himself, but we before God. And so this morning, I just want us to wrestle a little bit with this text. I want us to wrestle and feel the godness of God. Um, one of the most important truths of the doctrine of election is, is simply that we are not the center of the universe. Human beings are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. Uh, a carpenter friend recently sent me uh, an article a couple years ago about uh, in wood, wood, woodworking and, and the importance of establishing a straight line for all forms of woodworking. And one of the quotes from that, that article stuck out to me uh, the writer says, why do artisans need a tool that produces a straight line? The bottom line, no pun intended, because we need a tool that allows us to establish a true baseline from which all subsequent lines, shapes, and forms can be constructed with proportion and symmetries. And I think that's what Paul is doing in a way. He's saying that the true baseline of reality is God, and the purposes of God, the decrees of God. And from that reality, all the other lines need to be drawn. The purposes of God, the decrees of God, are the very womb of reality. And so I, I want you to consider, what is, the, what is the straight line of your system? Yesterday I tried to ha hung a gate with my uh, father-in-law um, on largely crooked... Uh, Try to hang a gate on a crooked fence. <laughs> and when you try to hang a gate on a crooked fence, all your measurements, everything has to be crooked to line up, right? You, you know, this, this is why you have to spend so much money to have, have people hang gates and stuff. Uh, because it is actually really hard. And that is how it is, right? Like, what's your straight line? And the reality is that all of our lines that we draw are crooked, which means that all the other lines are crooked. What is the straight line? What is the bottom line of your reality? What is that which against you measure all things? Is it you? Is it your, your grasp of the universe? 
Is it how you understand things should work? Or is it God? Is it the one who created the whole universe? Is the one who is directing all history? For Paul, uh, human beings, their choices, their thinking are actually not the bottom line, (laughs) right? Um, It's actually God. And central to, again, the doctrine of election is, is the truth that God's purposes cannot fail even in the face of human disobedience. This is, this is, I think, the heart of Paul's argument, is that the purposes of God in history, the purpose of God in salvation cannot fail even when human beings are disobedient. God doesn't set his plans according to our responses, but rather his plans determine all of reality. Now, this doesn't cancel out human freedom. It's a mystery, but that Paul's not concerned with that right here. Paul is concerned with the idea that human decisions cannot defeat the purposes of God. But again, I think we don't, again, we rebel against this. We rebel against the idea that actually God is ultimately the one who decrees what will happen. And Paul is echoing, I think, our sentiments of our heart. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, or I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul, what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is that God is free. God is completely free in salvation. That means he's not obligated to show mercy or compassion. He is free. In this statement, I will show mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, it's helpful to kind of recall the context. And the context actually was from our sacred reading, which was Moses asking to see the glory of God. But what's really important is understand what came before that which is that God leads the people of Israel out of, the, out of e- Egypt, out of bondage to Pharaoh. And they're in the desert, and they're there for merely weeks, and they grow impatient, and they form a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. They, they actually take the idols of Egypt, and they fall down and worship it, the God who saved them. And so Moses, is, he's pressing God, and what he's doing here is he's really trying to get... Um, He's, Moses is attempting to lock God into a mercy contract. He knows these people are going to rebel again. He knows it. He knows they're going to disobey. He's like, God, I need assurances. I need assurances that you are not going to wipe these people out. If I'm going to continue being, lead, leading these people, I need assurances. And God says to him, you can't tie my hands. You can't box me in. I am free. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Don't you remember that I am the same God who said to you in the burning bush, I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am who I am. I am free. I'm not obligated to show mercy to anyone. Now, you might be thinking, this seems very mercurial. What kind of God would want to show mercy to some but not to others? This sounds strange. But again, Why can't we have assurances that God shows mercy, right? Now, here's the thing. When we ask this question, a lot of times our underlying assumption is, we have this underlying assumption is that we deserve mercy. That somehow the people of Israel, or we ourselves, that, you know, like, yeah, we're screwed up, we're a little crooked, but you know, like, we're not so bad, we mean well, we do good, we just need somebody to show us a little mercy, a little bit of grace. The reality is, is the people of Israel are 
They're rebels. They have stuck their finger in God's face. You saved us, but you are not giving us what we want. They are morally speaking without excuse. They're without excuse. And the thing about Romans is that the first three chapters of Romans is Paul basically laying out systematically an account of human nature is that human nature is fallen and sinful and we are without excuse. Jews, Gentiles, religious people, non-religious people, we're all without excuse. None of us come to God with any righteousness, with any claim on God. We have nothing to leverage. Nothing. None of us deserves anything from God but justice. And if we were to get justice, justice means condemnation. Again, this is just, again, a very hard, hard truth for us to accept uh, in a therapeutic culture. Because all the things we do wrong, we tend to see as really, okay, it was my fault, but, you know, it was my upbringing in my family, or these different things. One of the things that the doctrine of election challenges us to think about is the sense of entitlement we bring to our relationship with God. It challenges the sense of entitlement that we bring to our relationship with God. What does God owe us? Friends, what does God owe us? Do you think that God owes you mercy? Is that something to which we are entitled? See, we fundamentally misunderstand the nature of mercy if we think it's something that we have a right to. Because mercy is not something that God owes anybody. What makes mercy mercy is that it can't be an obligation. Um, Imagine a man convicted of armed robbery who goes before the judge and argues to the judge, judge, I deserve mercy. You, you, I, that is my right. No, I mean, that's ridiculous, right? You get into a court of law and you've committed a crime. You don't, you don't argue that you deserve this because actually what you deserve is justice and justice is imprisonment, right? And that's how we often are when we come to God. We presume that God owes us mercy, but what God owes us actually only thing is justice. And Moses knows this. This is why he's like, man, if things keep going the way they are, I'm not, there's not going to be anybody left. And he's trying to press God again into this mercy contract. The question, friends, again, this is where the doctrine of election challenges us. It's not how could, why does God just save some but not others, but rather how could God save any? How could God extend grace and mercy to any? Nobody deserves it. And this is where the real mystery lay. Why has he shown mercy at all? How could he? How could God possibly set aside the claims of justice? Again, put yourself in situations of our culture when there's great harm or evil that's done, and people are quick to rush to talk about forgiveness, whether it's a shooter or whatever, and there's a sense of injustice that we feel that, how dare you extend mercy or forgiveness? That feeling that we have should be something we should reflect on for ourselves personally. So then it depends, according to Paul, not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Mercy can't be constrained. It lay entirely in the hands of the one who shows it. If it were up to us, it wouldn't be mercy. And Paul continues, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. See, if God is free to show mercy, 
The shadow side of mercy is that he doesn't show mercy to others. And yet, just as God's glory or his character is revealed in mercy, his character and his glory is revealed in judgment, in justice. Now, um, what's interesting here, and again, this is such a complex text going on, but Paul then shifts when he's talking about the unrepentant, disobedient one. He doesn't take Esau as his example. He actually shifts to Pharaoh. And I think there's an important reason for this. Because what Pharaoh represents is the ultimate unbeliever. He's the ultimate unbeliever. And he is, a, he is an unbeliever with the most power in the world. He actually has enslaved the very people of God. And God hardens his heart. And yet this unrepentant unbeliever who is an oppressor, who refuses to listen to God's prophet, to God's word, still his disobedience cannot defeat the purposes and the plans of God in history. This man cannot defeat God's plans. Now, God didn't make Pharaoh evil. That doesn't, that's not what hardening of Pharaoh's heart means. God didn't make Pharaoh to choose the evil, but God does not stand in Pharaoh's way. He doesn't stand in Pharaoh's way. And in fact, what he does is he makes an example out of him to reveal his power and his might as he liberates his people from oppression and bondage. And again, the deeper point that Paul is making here is that God shows himself as God both in mercy and in judgment, in justice. You will then say to me, Paul continues, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? Now, I, I want to note here that, that Paul understands um, the obvious objection, again, to his line of reasoning. Well, if God hardens the heart, what difference does it make what we do, right? We're just all um, robots, right? Moral robots. We, you know, how can we be held accountable? And Paul, he just rejects this out of hand. This is the distortion of what he's saying. We're not robots. We are free. We are responsible agents. But he's not at all interested here in, in trying to smooth out the rough edges here of, of his teaching. Pharaoh is fully responsible for the things he does. And yet God, God's hardening um, of him is, is evidence that God is still control even of his own disobedience. Paul is not interested in explaining the nuances of God's relationship between sovereignty and human freedom and how these human responsibility and how these things are, are uh, fit together to our own satisfaction. What he's interested in instead is to push us back on our heels. He is attacking the arrogance and the unbelief in the human heart and revealing it. That persistent sense that we know better, right? That we could run the universe better than God runs the universe, right? That is at the heart of the human condition, is this sense that, that we could run the universe better than God. If we had the power, we would get it right. And he wants to wake us up from this delusion what do you have, O mere mortal, to question God? The prophet Isaiah says, you turn things upside down. 
shall the potter be regarded as the clay that thing made should say to its maker he did not make me or the thing formed say to him who formed it he has no understanding friends compared to god this is not my image i don't know where it comes from we're like a mosquito flying into Niagara Falls. If you want to understand the creator-creature relationship, that captures it. To be a human being is to be like a mosquito flying into Niagara Falls. Woe. Woe to him who strives with him who made him a pot among earthen vessels. Okay, so what's the proper response to this sermon? Is it to believe and to accept the doctrine of election? Not exactly, although I I think you should. But it was not my goal to convince you of the doctrine of election this morning. I believe it is biblical. However, it has been my intent in this sermon um, just to humble us, right? (laughs) Paul just asserts the doctrine here. He doesn't explain it, but he wants to humble us. And I think that's the proper response to this text is humble yourself, between under the hand of the Almighty. Recognize that God is God and you are not. Recognize the distance, the gap, the Grand Canyon-like cavern that exists between you as a creature and your understanding and the Almighty Creator, the one who decrees and directs history to its ends. Reflect on your proper status before the one who created the heavens and the earth. God is God and we are not. And I think that when we are able to internalize this reality, that grace is not something owed to us, that we can make a claim for God, that we cannot claim to know better than God, this humbles us and it actually prepares us for grace. To understand that the true, undomesticated, unowed grace that we have in Jesus Christ. I want to just close and return this imagery of the straight line. God and his decrees are the straight line of reality with which all the lines of our lives must be measured. And the straight line of reality is not a hidden and mysterious decree behind history of which we are, don't know one way or another, no. The straight line of reality is fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. To be in Jesus Christ is to be God's elect. That's what, to to believe in Jesus Christ is to be God's elect. Sometimes people come and ask, who believe in the doctrine, but they've misunderstood it, and they struggle. I don't know if I'm God's elect or not, and I ask, are you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you, have you put faith and trust in him? Do you come to the Lord's table? And they say, yes, well then you're God's elect. See, this is not, Paul's point here is not to to (laughs) cause us to question our salvation or to be speculative about things. He wants to humble us, and he wants to direct us to Jesus Christ, who is the true baseline of all reality. And here's the thing. He is the carpenter, right? You remember? Who showed us that God's straight line is not exactly how we would draw it. How did Jesus draw the straight line of reality? (laughs) It forms a cross. It looks crooked. But that is the straight line 
the womb of all reality. It's the place where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet in one place and are perfectly aligned. And this needs, friends, to be the baseline of our own lives. And that baseline is this. It is grace and it is mercy. Not one that is owed to us, but one that has graciously been given to us by the Lord. God is God and we are not. And yet God became human. (laughs) He became human in Jesus Christ. And he has shown himself to us in Jesus Christ as the God who loves us. The God who always opens and offers to us his grace and his mercy if we come to him. So come to him this morning and put your faith and trust in him. Let us pray. Lord, human words can't capture your majesty. And my words, no doubt, don't capture the fullness or, um, of all that you are. And, and Lord, we do pray that in all the noise of our culture and our lives that distract us and delude us from your reality, that, that you would wake us up, that you are God and we are not, that and what that means in terms of humbling us. But also, Lord, that that truth is not incompatible with the fact that in Jesus Christ, you have given us grace and mercy. And so we pray for a renewal of, and a sense of deep gratitude for what we have received from you and him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.